My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a returning guest that spent time as an Army combat Apache pilot in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. He was an FBI special agent and a member of the Dallas office FBI SWAT team in his career. Now he's a New York Times bestselling author of not only the Matt Drake series of books, Without Sanction, The Outside Man, and his newest edition in that series, Hostile Intent. He has been charged with taking the mantle of character growth and further story development in the Tom Clancy series about Jack Ryan Jr. with Target acquired and soon to be released Zero Hour, which are also New York Times bestsellers. He's here tonight to talk about his new release, The State of the World, and possibly fail at 80s trivia. I'm so happy to introduce, in my opinion, one of the best writers in the world, Mr. Don Bentley. What's going on, my friend? Hey, thanks so much for having me. I need to take you on tour with me. Like, that was the best intro, hands down, I've ever had. So, I mean, just the bumper music was great. Just, you got to come on tour with me. Well, actually, you know, uh, I I had uh, some guys that listened to the show. They have a band up in D.C., and they wrote all the intro and outro music and everything. So, I got to thank them, give a big shout out to Rattle Root, so... Nice uh, job, Rattle Root. What are you doing, my friend? Uh, you are a busy, busy, busy man these days. I am. So I've got Hostile Intent that comes out a week from uh, tomorrow, actually. It's crazy to say that. So on the 3rd of May. And then I've got my next Jack Ryan Jr. book called Zero Hour, which comes out on the 7th of June. And then, actually before that, I am finishing my fourth Matt Drake book, which is called The Forgotten War, and that is due the 15th of May. So if I can get to 7 June, <laughs> I might be able to read. That's, I know promises, but that's what I'm shooting for right now. How is it with your, uh, how is it with your family, uh, spending all this time with your books? They've been good about it. So up until last summer, um, I was actually working uh, a real job too. And so last summer, back in June of 2021, I quit my real job. And so hostile intent, I was way behind on. I was supposed to turn it in in um, July 15th, I think. And I ended up being a week and a half or so late. And then hostile intent was, no, that's not right. Yeah, no, no. So the Clancy book, Zero Hour, was the first book I wrote um, working full-time as a writer. And so they've been pretty awesome about it. Um, I try and and just work real hard in the day, so I still have some time uh, left at night to spend with my family. But it's definitely been a wild ride. 
Well, you know, and and I say that because you are writing so much now. Like when you first started, we talked about it. Like mm-hmm. you wrote, but you had some time kind of in between your books yep. to gather your thoughts yep. and stuff. And now, I mean, it, it's just yep. kind of taken over now. Yeah, it's crazy. So when I was when I was still wanting to be a writer, um, and, and I still go to this conference. There's an awesome co- conference called Thriller Fest in New York every year, and it's got the biggest thriller writers like Lee Child and Steve Barry and Heather Graham. These were all the folks who founded it. And so one of my first times there, I got to see Brad Taylor on a on a panel. And so when Brad first started out, he wrote two novels and a novella every year. So he wrote two full length books and a smaller one. And so somebody asked him while I was sitting on the panel and they said, hey, do you ever get writer's block or do you ever guess yourself in the plot or do you ever get stuff? And he's like, no, because I don't have time to do that. And so that has been, you know, kind of what it's been for me is I have an idea and I just got to go after that sucker full throttle because I don't have the time to second guess it and and try and figure out, you know, how, how crazy it is. And so, so far, knock on wood, um, it's worked out for me, but maybe this book will be the one that it all falls apart for. And, and you could be the one that breaks that story. Bentley cannot hack it anymore. That'll be you. <laughs> Bentley calls it in. Bentley hey, uh, calls it in. So here's the thing that I, I want to tell you, and th- you know, you and I have talked, this is what our third show now together yeah. with the books. Yep. I, yep. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Don, you came into your own on this one. You tore Thank this you. one up. I absolutely loved it. It was so easy to read. I mean, like Thank you. It, it, it read itself. Um, there's a lot that happens in it. I don't want to give away too many spoilers because it's not yeah. even out yet, but I do want to talk about a couple of things that I saw you kind of switch up in it. Yeah. And I, I want to talk first, you know, in all the times that we've met together, we've never really talked about your military career. And I told you, I yeah. want to talk about that a little because Absolutely. I think that, that, that a lot of people look at some of these writers and they say, well, they write about them, but they really don't know. And I think you and I have talked about it. Like, mm-hmm. uh, people had said it about Clancy and stuff that, yep. that, yep. um, there was more needed. Yep. I want people to understand exactly where you're coming from. Like sure. you have the military side, you have the intelligence side, you, I don't know if necessarily spy side, but definitely the inner workings of working in investigation. So it might not necessarily be spy craft or anything, but it's definitely investigative work. But talking about your Apache uh, career and Operation Enduring Freedom, you were awarded a couple medals. And you, if I'm right, you were awarded the Air Medal with Valor, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Can can we talk about that mission just a little bit so people can kind of understand where you're coming from? Because pilots tend to show up in your stuff. Yeah, they do. And, and what's, what's different about, um, this is a little bit inside baseball, but for folks who were in the military or something, will kind of get it. One of the things that's very different about the army than, than say the Marine Corps, who also has attack helicopters is that in the army, aviation is its own branch and it's a maneuver force. And so what that means is that you, instead of just being helicopter gunships that support guys on the ground, the Army treats helicopter gunships much like their big flying tanks or armored vehicles. And so as a young lieutenant, I had to learn the same kind of things that a maneuver officer would learn in the ground branch. You know, what are the fundamentals of a reconnaissance? How do you do a screen? How do you do an area reconnaissance? What does a deep attack look like? And so some of that grounding from and, – and what you're alluding to a little bit is that one of the things I think that makes – 
Hostile Intent different from my other two books is it's much broader in scope. And so it, it absolutely, you still get to see some of the espionage stuff that folks love about Matt, but you also get to see much more of an kind of an epic military thriller. When I was a kid, um, Red Storm Rising that Tom Clancy wrote was one of my favorite books. Um, Team Yankee that Harold Coyle wrote about a, a Russian invasion in Germany was another one. And I really tried to hearken back to that. And in, in my experience as a as an aviation officer, as an air cavalry officer, really came in handy for that. And so um, to loop back to your question, yeah, I deployed to Afghanistan in 2005 to 2006 as an air cavalry officer. So I was a troop commander and, and was also uh, a pilot in command. And so what that meant is in, a, in Afghanistan, if you were a gunship pilot, there are basically three kinds of missions. And so the first one was called the ring route mission. And what that was is because Afghanistan's so rugged and um, the enemy situation on the ground was so volatile, a lot of supplies and troops and equipment were moved from fob to fob by helicopter. And so whenever a Blackhawk or Chinook or something, they would do these ring routes where they would literally go from fob to fob to fob. And it might be a seven or eight hour day that you're just moving equipment around the battlefield. And Apache gunships would always be the ones who flew in support of that. And so you literally are, are providing escorts. So that's one kind of mission. The second kind of mission is a direct action mission. And so you would have a lot of times um, we were the only gunship support in theater. And so we would support, uh, there was a SEAL team there at Bagram that we supported pretty often. Every time a new special operations, whether it was um, the Green Berets that would come into town or foreign nations soft, um, we would go across the river in Bagram and practice shooting with them so that they would get comfortable talking with us and calling us in on targets. And so when they would go out and do an operation or even just, just you know, regular ground infantry folks, we would be their gunship support in that um, mission. And so what that typically looked like was kind of the opposite of the ring route mission where it was usually very short in duration but very lengthy from a planning perspective because you would plan for three or four days or however long you would integrate with the guys on the ground, you would conduct rehearsals, you would do all that so that when they went out and hit the objective, it would be a very synchronized operation. And so the third mission is what's called the QRF or quick reactionary force mission. And so every FOB that had gunships would like Bagram. I spent a lot of my time at Bagram, but I also had folks in Salerno and Jalalabad and Abad and everything. But um, Bagram would have a QRF force, um, which would consist of Blackhawk, Chinooks, and Apaches that were on a 12-hour shift. And it was usually, it was something like four in the morning till four in the afternoon. And you would do that shift for you know, seven or 10 days or, or two weeks, I forget what it was, it would vary. And then you'd usually have 24 hours off and then you would get the opposite cycle. And so you're trying to acclimate from days to nights over a 24 hour period. And so that one was very much, um, you were the 911 force um, for that, that military installation. And so you would come in, you'd run up your helicopter, you'd come in, get a brief and say, hey, here are sometimes there were missions um, that the QRF would be used for. So for instance, if a, if a general was going to fly from Bagram to Kabul, uh, they would, he would want an Apache gunship escort. And so you knew, okay, this mission is going to go. But there were many, many more um, that were not predicted. And so you would, you'd walk around with a little walkie-talkie on, and if you got called, you had to be airborne within 30 minutes. And so that could be anything from 
hey, there's um, some kids that got hit. They need a medevac and you're going to go escort the medevac to what's called a tick or a troops in contact where somebody's getting ambushed somewhere. And so Apaches, you go to, you know, go do that. And so that was very much um, what you signed up to do as a gunship pilot, right? We were cavalry officers. We hearken back to the days of the cavalry coming, riding in over the hill this day. And so that was what you very much wanted to do. It's why you became a gunship pilot. And so for me on, on June 28th, 2005, I was on the QRF shift and um, we started uh, the briefing that morning um, with an update that said, hey, there was a four man SEAL team that was inserted the previous night and we've lost contact with them. And um, don't know what's going on yet, but stand by. It could be a mission. It could not be. And that was that wasn't typical, but it was very typical to say this might happen today. It might not because it's very fluid. That's what the quick reactionary force did. And so, you know, got the briefing, went along my day. And at some point, I can't remember when it was sometime that morning, we got the call that said, hey, you guys are going to go. And so I went running for the helicopter because I was the pilot in command. My front seater would run to the talk, which is called um, the Tactical Operations Center. And so he would get you know, basically uh, an info dump. So at the time we said, here's a call sign, a frequency and a last known grid go. And so he came running back to the helicopter. It was me and my wingman and that was uh, my XO and then another maintenance pilot. And so we flew from um, Bagram down to Jalalabad linked up with a, a black, um, black or black Hawk uh, flight. I think it was two or three helicopters that had a bunch of Marine QRF. And so we flew in mass um, up to the last known location of these SEALs. And as we were flying, um, when we got to JBAD to land, I saw a couple Chinooks take off and I knew they were 160th Chinooks because the Chinooks, all, the 160th Chinooks had that big fueling um, boom at the end of it. And I remember, you know, looking up and watching them and thinking, I wonder where they're going. And then <laughs> You know, I did the air mission brief for our flight. We took off and in route, we actually linked up with those Chinooks. So found it, found out later they took off and went to Asadabad, got a brief there. And then we happened to come back together and link up. And so um, we were the first Apache longbow um, gunships into Afghanistan. And the reason why that's significant is the version of the Apache is much older, but much lighter. And it was about 4,000 pounds or something like that, lighter than a fully combat loaded longbow. And so we had the same engines and were 4,000 pounds heavier. And it was very high and hot in, in the summertime. And so what that means is that you're power limited. And so as we're climbing up the side of the mountain to try and get uh, to the landing zone, that was the last known location for these three steels. Um, I would have to, and the way you would do this is the Blackhawks would fly in front so that if they got shot at, they could move over and the Apaches could roll in and suppress. And then when you got to what was called the release point, the Blackhawks would slow down, the Apaches would come up front, and you would go clear the landing area, the landing zone, and you would call it hot or cold for the Blackhawks to be able to come in and dump their guys off. And so we were having such a hard time at that height that I had to keep calling the Blackhawks and say, you got to slow down, you got to slow down because I can't keep up with you. And in front of them were the two Chinooks that were the 160th Chinooks um, full of SEALs. And so I had a similar conversation with them and you know, we hadn't briefed the mission together. Our radio fills, so the radios get loaded with encryptions that allow you to talk securely. 
And because they were 160th and we were not, our encryptions were slightly off. And so we had, you know, a hard time talking to them. And there was an A-10 that was orbiting overhead and I'd have to use him to relay sometimes to him. And we really didn't know each other. Like I said, it was total happenstance that we were both coming in at the same time. And so I told um, the lead Chinook, I said, you have got to slow down or else you're going to beat me to the landing zone. And he said, no, I'm going to go in anyway. You can clear it once you get here. And so he came, the two Chinooks came in, he started to come to a hover so guys could fast rope out and uh, the Taliban were there and they, they hit him with an RPG and tragically went into the side of the mountain and, and he was, you know, they were killed. Everybody on board was killed. And so it, as often is the case um, when you get medals afterwards is for something that went tragically wrong. And so it, it, on that day, it went very tragically wrong. And it was a hard thing uh, for me to deal with because I'd spent much like um, I think folks who are in law enforcement or first responders, you spend your entire career training for this instant in time when you're supposed to do your job. And then sometimes things go sideways and there's nothing you can do about it. And you can't get that moment in time back. And so that was very much something I had to figure out how to deal with. You know, how do you, it's, you know, and, and I don't trivialize it, but the, for folks who haven't served, you know, served in that line of work, I often like it to the fact if you were a professional football player and spent your entire career getting ready for the Super Bowl and the first play of the game, you walk out and fumble the ball and that's it. You know, that's what it felt like. That's what it felt like that, you know, my job on that day was to protect those helicopters and I couldn't do it. And so and then not only that, but I got an air medal for it uh, for not, you know, for for what I felt like was was not doing my job correctly. And so that was um, that day. And, and, and Marcus Luttrell was one of the, the four seals that we were. Um, trying to go get and ended up being the the lone survivor and he wrote a book about his experience called survivor and so that is um, kind of what happened that day and that very much um, affected my life in profound ways and 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 uh, affected the writing of my first book without sanction because without sanction is very much a story of redemption it's very much a story of the main character matt drake trying to figure out um, when the book is begun, he's had an asset in Syria who was killed and his best friend, Frodo, who was a, a sniper um, in Delta Force, was catastrophically injured. And Matt thinks it's his fault. And that moment in time is gone and he can't ever get it back. And so he, he has to figure out how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the guilt, the survivor's guilt that comes with it? How do you deal with the fact of thinking that maybe the most, most important, the most significant moment of your life is gone and you can't ever get it back? And so that was very much um, part of my story. So let me ask you then, because you say you, you try and figure out how you get past it. So yeah. the question would be, how do you get past it? So I, I think a couple things. One of the things... Um, that I did wrong that I think a lot of folks who are veterans do wrong is that when you're in the service, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about that because you're so caught up in the mission and what you're doing. And frankly, you're surrounded by people who have stories like that. And so it's not terribly uncommon. But when you go from that to leaving the military and all of a sudden, all the connection you had, everyone who understood that is gone. And not only that, but you're dealing now folks who I've, I've done federal law enforcement and then also the military. When you do those kind of jobs, 
you have this sense that what you do is noble, that there is, that what you do matters and a lot of your identity is tied up in what you do. And so when you go from that, and I, I went to work for a great company, um, but I was pulling into a parking lot every day and sitting in a cubicle farm. And so inside I'm like, what is, nobody here knows what I did before. Nobody here knows about those guys on the side of the mountain. Nobody here, and it, and it crushed me that, you know, who, who even am I anymore? What, how do I find that significance in my life? And so for me, it was a couple of things. One is, is reestablishing contact with people, a couple of my best friends now, and they, again, there's a reason why my, my protagonist, Matt Drake, is a former member of the Ranger Regiment. It's because three of my best friends are former members of the Ranger Regiment who were in a um, what's called Talker Gar or, or now Roberts Ridge, where both a um, Air Force, um, tactical Air Force controller and a SEAL were awarded the Medal of Honor for the horrible events that day when their helicopter was shot down. And my friend was the Ranger QRF platoon leader who had to watch his guys die because they wouldn't send another helicopter in to, um, to get them in daylight. And so he had to sit there as the hours went by until nightfall, knowing that his guys were going to die because they were so grievously injured and also knowing that there was absolutely nothing that he could do about it. And so it was, I think, finding like community um, with folks who have stories like that, who understand your story. And then the second part of it is finding something to do that still gives you that sense of significance. And so for me, that's why I went um, into the FBI. That's why I was a SWAT guy for a while. That's why I did that. And then when I finally left the FBI, the companies that I worked for have been predominantly companies that that um, make things for folks in the intelligence community or in the special operations community. And so for me, I have a, a friend that works at a great company that makes diapers and, and there's nothing wrong with making diapers. People need diapers. I had little kids who needed diapers, but I couldn't ever work for a company who made a di diapers. I needed to feel like what I was doing was still affecting the men and women that were going in harm's way. And so if I couldn't do that myself anymore, I could at least stand with those customers and hear their stories and try and make their life better. And so that's how I kind of came to terms with it. But I think everybody has to figure out that journey uh, for themselves. So would you say that this writing is a, a form of therapy for you? It really lets you work through things because I think it's interesting that you point that out when you when you talk about that and you say that mm -hmm. more helicopters couldn't come. There's many times in your books that those things yeah. come back in different ways, but they very yeah. much come back to Matt Drake where there's a failure or something yeah. should have happened that didn't happen or he should have gotten an asset when he didn't get an asset. Now, yeah. you approach that completely different with, with Jack Ryan Jr. and all those, but with Matt Drake, it's very much a a singular operation. Yeah. Kind of with Jack Ryan too. My question to that is I say all that to say this with Matt Drake being pretty much a work alone guy, Jack Ryan jr. Mm -hmm. Being a work alone guy. What was the benefits of working alone and working as a team? Because you really did both. Yeah. I think, um, I think from a writing perspective, so go back a little bit on where um, you started with that question. So I wrote three books that didn't sell before I wrote Without Sanction that did. And I think one of the 
deciding factors or what made without sanction something people wanted to read and, a, and an editor wanted to buy was the fact that I was finally brave enough to put the stuff that I was scared about in this book, the stuff that I was struggling with, the stuff. And so very much what you're saying, um, I've done both from my perspective. And, and again, I've been very fortunate over the last 10 years. I had one uh, when, when Without Sanction first came out, and I was doing radio interviews, the, the lady that was interviewing me said, you know, are you Matt Drake? And, and I said, you know, I'm absolutely not Matt Drake, but I've stood in the same room with him. And so because of the people that I've gotten to meet and the stories I've heard, you know, one of my very good friends um, is uh, he spent, I think, 10 or 12 years in uh, Delta Force, you know, retired as a sergeant major. And his very first deployment with Delta Force was um, – was what we called the Black Hawk Down mission. It was it was called the Operation Gothic Serpent um, for the folks who did it. But the Black Hawk Down mission, where several two different U.S. Um, helicopters were shot down, and Michael Durant was captured, and and so he was telling me. And, and there's a a stanza that Matt Drake is a is a ranger, and there's a stanza in the Ranger Creed um, that is echoed throughout the special operations community in a lot of different ways. That says something to the effect of never will I allow a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. And so you and I hear that and we say, yeah, I can get behind that. But these guys treat that as an oath to the, to, to the point where during the Black Hawk Down operation, my friend told me that one of the helicopters that had crashed, they were the Delta Force operators and some Rangers were on the site collecting bodies. They knew everybody inside the helicopter was already dead. And they're collecting bodies as they're getting shot. And so if you take that back and say, why in the world would you risk the living for the dead? Why would you send guys who are alive to go collect the bodies of people who you know are dead? Why would you do that? And the answer is because of that oath that they swear to each other, that I can't guarantee that you will come back home alive, but I swear to you that never will I allow a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. And when he told me that story, it just moved me. It moved something inside. And I saw that happen firsthand in Afghanistan when that helicopter was shot down full of SEALs. The war pretty much stopped until we recovered every single one of their bodies. Because, And that's something that's very unique to the military, the U.S. military, that we make that promise to our soldiers and sailors and airmen. And in particular, if you're part of the special operations community, you live that. And I'm like, I have got to be able to tell that story or, or just show not that story specifically, but to give the reader a vantage point into the men and women who operate in the shadows, who operate in that community, who do the things that most of us never hear about. And so I've been very, very lucky kind of over the last 10 years or so to meet Matt Drake many different times, to be able to stand in the same room with him, to be able to buy him a beer, to hear his stories. And so those stories very much inform my writing, not from a, you know, an event to an event, but the spirit, the ethos that drives it, you know, very much I want to show that. And I think, you know, part of the reason, um, and, and, you know, Matt, Matt Drake operates alone in hostile intent. He actually has a team, um, which he hadn't before. But I think it was very much for me, um, Brad Taylor once said that um, a story might draw readers in, 
but if they stick around, it's going to be because of the characters and the characters are going to, are what are going to make people want to come back for the next book or the next book. And, and my stories are built around Matt Drake. And there's some things that I had to figure out about him and what made him tick and how he'd react. And so the first two books are very, very, in fact, um, the outside man, the second book in my series is only told from Matt's perspective. It's just this very narrowed view on it. Now, like I said, hostile intent, I think the other thing you have to do is give your characters room to grow. And so what you see in, in hostile intent is he still kind of starts off the way he usually does as, as a single man operation, but you see him kind of progress in hostile intent as a team leader and that he actually, you know, the, the climax of the book and everything, he has a, a team of Navy SEALs that he's working with. And so, you know, part of that, again, is allowing the character to grow and to see things. But I think there's something there's something uniquely American, even back to, you know, one of my favorite Westerns is Shane. Right. Is that idea of this stranger that comes to town by himself and does it? I think that's a uniquely American idea that that idea of the rugged individualism, that idea that one man or woman can make a difference and. You know, I, that's something that lights me on fire. And so you see that in a lot of my books. Well, I, I think you point that out with Shane, but I think you can point it out with the shootest. There's a lot of Westerns yep. unforgiven yep. that are the same way that, that yep. someone comes for redemption, not necessarily revenge, redemption, because I think they're yep. two completely separate things. Um, and with this book, I noticed something different with Matt. You talked about the uh, to never leave, uh, you know, a yep. fallen behind. Yep. It very much came out when you were saying that to me and, and I don't want to get too spoilery, but sure. there was a mission that happened in during this. Yeah. That someone that yeah. did happen to, and it very much was very poignant for, uh, Matt. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, I'm trying to, to trade kind of carefully around that, but I absolutely. wanted to show that, that, um, that idea that sometimes sometimes the mission is the mission and sometimes um, the individual is the mission. And those two things can change um, perhaps during the course of an operation. And so, you know, it's, it's a crazy thing, right? Because you're, uh, you know, I, like I said, I was, a, um, I was a SWAT guy for a little while with the FBI. And one of the first things you're doing when you're learning how to do um, close quarters battle, battle drill where you're where you're clearing a house or you're doing something like that is as you're doing the training your team leader will come along and, and simulate you know the guy in front of you you've been shot you're down and so your instinct when you're a new guy is holy crap they've been shot I need to take care of him and so they beat that out of you and say no you can't do that you have to leave that person because until you neutralize the shooter anything you do for a comrade or anything you stop to render aid you're actually endangering everyone else to do that. And it's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to everything you as a decent human being has been brought up to think is I'm going to leave this person on the ground right now because I have to go complete this mission. And so I wanted to take a look at that. And I wanted to take a look at, you know, is there a scenario maybe where there wouldn't be true or, or dive into that a little bit. And I did in hostile intent. Well, and I think with the situation that we're talking about, it was very much mission worthy of how yeah. it happened. It it, it yeah. had to happen. There was no, it was yep. very much Murphy's law. Now let's talk about character development for a minute with this, because you're right. A lot of your characters have changed. Frodo mm -hmm. has changed. Matt's yep. changed. Matt's wife has very much changed. 
Yep. And his team leader has changed. Yep. What I liked about his team leader now is through the first two books, he's very telling him, you know, what's going to happen yeah. when you introduce yep. him, telling him what's going to happen. This one, he's telling him what's going to happen, but it's more of an ask than a tell. Yeah. 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 I think, um, so it's a, that's a hard line to walk when you're writing series. Cause on, on one hand, readers want, they come back to a series for some of the same, right? They come back because they want to see the same characters. They come back because, you know, there's a reason why, um, you, you know, you, you go and see a show like the A-Team and you're like, all right, this is going to be the part where B.A. rigs together a bicycle and a armored car and something else is going to be great. But you know what? I got to see that through my kids' eyes when it came out on Netflix and they were 10 or 11 years old. And for the first seven or eight episodes, they loved it. And then by the 10th or something, my son's like, they're all the same. Like this happens and this happens and this happens. And so the way you make things different for the reader or the viewer isn't necessarily the newest plot twist or here's a new angle. It's that your characters change. And as your characters change, everything changes with them. And so one of the, one of the authors I look up to is Daniel Silva. And for his Gabriel Alon series, and I think he might be in his 17th or 18th book, in his first book, Gabriel Alon, who was a former Mossad operative, is – this broken down guy who's sitting on the coast of England painting paintings and he gets pulled back into life. And now 17 books later, he now has, a, he's uh, married, has kids and he's the director of the, of the Mossad. And I think you have to be able to walk that line where people change, the characters change, they grow a little, but they can't grow so far that they grow out of, I think what brings readers there in the first place. And so, that's one aspect. I'd, I'd say the second aspect is my editor is incredible. Tom Colgan has edited everybody from the, the, the Tom Colgan, the Tom Colgan from uh, Tom Clancy when Tom was still alive to Janet Ivanovich and everybody in between. And he found Mark Graney when Mark first started and, and has edited Mark his entire time too. And one of the times Tom and I were talking about a book I was working on and he said, you know what makes Mark such an incredible writer. He said he has progressed to the point in his career where readers will pick up his book regardless because he has a huge following. He's done so well. He's done well enough that he could phone it in if he wanted to. He could just write a book that has, you know, maybe a different plot and it's, you know, episode 23 of The Gray Man. And he said, but Mark refuses to do that. He pushes himself in some way with every book. And you can see it. His last book, I think, was Relentless. And, and he had two different timelines going on at the same time. And it was part origin story and part, and he doesn't have to do that, but he pushes himself as a writer to do that. And so I've kind of tried to take that to heart and say, how do I stretch myself as a writer and then stretch the story that I tell each time? And so I think, like I said, I appreciate um, the kind words with, with Hostile Intent because it was by far the hardest book I've ever had to write or the hardest book I've ever written and many times I was like, this is, this is too hard. This is too crazy. The, you know, in the climactic scene, they, there are so many different points of view that come together at the same time. You know, at one point I had the entire office floor just covered with index cards as I'm trying to synchronize all of this. And I'm like, this is too complicated. Like I'm making this too complicated. And then I heard like Tom Colgan whispering in my voice, be better. And so you know, that very much drove me is like, okay, I'm asking people to pay money for this book. 
I need to try and stretch myself so that they think it's worth it after they give me their 20 bucks or whatever. But I think you did it in a very natural way. And the reason I say that and why I brought up the character development, let's, let's take them one by one. So you have uh, the boss who mm-hmm. very much was a telling guy, but yeah. Matt has built his trust over these books yeah. and he knows yep. that he can tell him to do something, but that he'll take care of it right. Yep. The big relationship changes I feel is Frodo because mm-hmm. now he's got a girlfriend. He's a different kind of person. He's not a guy that sits in his room, drinks his whiskey, all that kind of stuff. The big one though is Matt and his wife. She was very much, I think you would agree, a victim in the second book. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. She is not a victim in the third book. And you make that very clear from page yeah. one that she's on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think that's part of it too, right? Is you, um, one, one of the, so again, and I apologize if I said this on your show before, but one of the things Tom told me when I was starting out is that when you come to a genre, you need to do same, but different. So same in that it belongs in the genre, but different in that what you're doing, you know, Brad Taylor writes an incredible Brad Taylor book. I'm never going to write a better Brad Taylor book. So I've got to figure out what I do that's the same but different. And one of the things I noticed as I'm looking out across the genre is there are very few um, protagonists who have a wife or have family. And so I thought, you know what, I want my guy to be happily married. And then I want to show what that looks like when the world collides, you know, part of what we had to figure out, I had to figure out with my own wife is when I was going all the way back to what we were talking about before, when I got out of the army, we moved back to our hometown. My parents were there. Her parents were there. Her sisters were there. Everybody was happy. Everybody was happy, but me. And I could not figure out why it was. I was not happy. Why I felt like I was dying inside when my whole family was, you know, living their best life. And so I make Matt and Lila go through that. You know, they, that was part of the outside man, the premise for that. And then I also wanted to show, okay, so what happens? Something catastrophic happens to Matt's wife, Lila, and the outside man. How does that change her? And how does she react to that? You know, how would my wife, Lila is very, very, very much um, based on my life, on my wife. And so I wanted to be able to show number one, a guy who is madly in love with his wife, but number two, his wife, who is not just a set piece in the book either, but has, you know, brings just as much to the table as it does. So I appreciate you saying that. But don't you think they even talk to each other different in this one? Yeah. Yeah, they might. That's true. I hadn't even thought of it that way. I Um, mean, they're very, I don't know if I want to use the word flirty. They're very (laughs) flirty when you first introduce them, but she understands what's happening in the second book. She did not. She wanted nothing to do with it. Now she understands what's going on. I think you did a fantastic job on it. There's a couple other characters that I want to talk about. We've got to talk about Matt's partner in this. I call her partner. Uh, I don't think you could have written a better one in. They are the odd couple, yeah. but they very much, as much as they begrudgingly say it, they work well together. Yeah. Yeah, it was super fun. So I had this book um, very much, like I said, is a standalone, but it also wraps up a bunch of things that had happened in the previous two books. And so in The Outside Man, there's a character um, that Matt met who was a – a high-level Mossad officer, and he meets him again in Hostile Intent. And so Matt needs help, and the guy agrees to it. 
And as the price of Matt's help, he gives Matt one of his case officers, a woman named Ella. And so there are two different ways you can do this as a writer. So when you're a writer and you're telling yourself the story, like I say, as a, you naturally want to default to the shortest point between two or the, 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 a straight line, you know, the, the easiest way between two points. That's the easiest way for the writer. It's the most boring thing for the reader. And so for me, I thought, you know, if I'm going to have these two people work together, how do I make it as difficult on the two of them as possible? And then that makes uh, hopefully the story richer as you start to see them sync and work together. And so, you know, you and I have talked before about 80s movies and the, and the ones that influenced me. I mean, Lethal Weapon was very much that in the beginning, right? Danny Glover and Mel Gibson did not get along. Their two characters, you know, couldn't stand each other. They, they were at opposite ends of the world. And But then you get to see as the movie and as the series progress, how they overcome those differences and still work to each other. And I thought it would be really, really fun to try and do that. And, and again, I've been lucky enough to work with Israelis a number of times. The last company I worked with uh, was a wholly owned subsidiary of Israeli companies. And so a lot of the things you see in this book have been directly taken from my day-to-day -day life before I was a writer full-time. And there were times where I'd be on conference calls and my wife would assume we were all cursing each other out. I'm like, no, that's just a normal day when you're talking with Israelis. That's how they roll. And so I really, you know, that was another thing. I was like, that would be fun to be able to bring in and kind of show this. And so Ella was a really fun, was a really hard character because you're constantly, you know, walking the line between you want her to stand on her own. You want her to be um, a self-sufficient character, but Matt is still the star of the show, right? And so you, you have to figure out how do you balance those out and things. And it was a ton of fun to do. But it took the, the most work I did in this book were probably the Ella and Matt scenes because I'd rewrite them and rewrite them and rewrite them to get the tone right, to get the relationship between the two of them right. Because, you know, if you do it right, there's a chemistry there. There's a magic that happens when the two of them work together. And that's definitely what I was shooting for. So with them, mm -hmm. I want to ask you this because it, it always pops in my head when I'm reading your books, because like you said, he's married. He's very much in love with his wife. Yeah. But I always go back to think about James Bond or something else. Would it be easier just to make him a single man romancing these women? There's very much a chemistry between him yeah. and Ella is it easier? Is it harder? You know, what is your basis behind it? Yeah, I think it is easier. And uh, so another, my favorite writer ever who, who I never got to meet before he died was Vince Flynn. And early on, and I forget which book it is, but Vince Flynn had a wife and she was pregnant. And, um, and in this book, an assassin comes up and he's, trying to set a bomb for Mitch Rapp as protagonist and he kills the wife and kid instead. And I remember reading an interview with Vince and he's like, I didn't know what to do. And he's like, if I have my protagonist, you know, tied down with a wife and kid, it completely changes them and changes their dynamic. It was so much easier to have him single. And so I did that. And so from my perspective, I wanted to do the opposite of that. I wanted to say, you know, what does it look like in the real life for folks, because the majority of people are married, right? The majority of people do have spouses and the majority of people still, you know, uh, work with people who maybe you do have chemistry with, maybe you don't, but how do you navigate that? And how do you, 
how do you show, uh, uh, again, because the people I got to meet, the real Matt Drakes in my life, it was their spouse that grounded them. So when they go on deployments, when they go and do what they do, it's that spouse and family that's providing the foundation for their life. And in fact, a lot of the times when you see people, you know, whether it's veteran suicides or things start to become unhinged, it stems from the family breaking down, right? The mom and dad getting divorced, there's trouble with the kids. And so I really wanted to show the opposite of that. I thought I knew it would be harder. I knew it would be easier just to do, you know, have Matt be a, a, a free agent, if you will, and just bring people in and out. But I thought it would add more to him as a character. And frankly, it reflects some of the things that I hold in, in high esteem, that I think there's something noble about a guy who's crazy in love with his wife, who does his job and does what he does, but still has her that he's thinking um, that he wants to get back to. And so, yeah, I, I made those choices very deliberately. Well, maybe it helps your wife stay happy with you when you're just <laughs> working on books constantly. So a couple of the settings and stuff that we need to talk about this book. First off, they always make fun of the Simpsons being able to tell the future. Um <laughs> <laughs> this book is right from yeah, the headlines. Yeah. And you wrote this. You turned this in, what, last, I think right after we talked, you turned this in yeah, last year. Yeah, last so, July, July 2021. The thing that I want to talk about about it is, and I don't think this is being too spoilery. This is a, a big thing of it. With Russia and yeah. the Ukraine in it, yep. you even pointed out the tactical of how they should do it and how they were amassing at the border which is exactly yeah. what hurt Russia when they went into Ukraine was they didn't have it set up properly. So we've one, we've got to talk about that Two, We've got to talk about Vienna and what I think mm -hmm. a lot of people don't understand about Vienna. But first off, let's talk about these headlines of Russia going into the Ukraine and this being a pretty big basis for the story. Yeah. So, um, two things. So when you're, when you're in the military, um, or in the army anyway, there is a, a staff position that's called the S2, and that's the intelligence officer. And so at the at the battalion or the squadron level, if you're cavalry, the S2 is responsible for a couple things. So he or she is the commander's expert on the enemy. And so they will brief that here's what the enemy situation is, here's their disposition, here's how they're arrayed. And then the other thing they do before you do an operation you'll actually set up a terrain board outside somewhere where they'll say, you know, we're going to go seize this bridge. They'll build the bridge. They'll set up and, and the commanders will actually stand on the battlefield and move to where they're going to be and say, okay, I'm going to be in this attack fire or attack by fire position. Here's my primary task and purpose. Here's how my forces are going to be arrayed. So at the same time, the S2 does that but he or she is playing the enemy's role and so they'd say okay in response to what you're doing here's how my forces are arrayed here's how i'm going to counter what your attack plan is when i see this i'm going to do this and it's very much kind of like a back and forth like a chess match and so what that does everybody who's an officer might not hold a a s2 billet but at some point you have done that job whether it's in a planning cell at the company level maybe it's an exercise and so it very much teaches you to see the battlefield from your enemy's perspective and so when i got to the point and said you know what what i want to do i knew my first two books were very middle east um, focused and i'm like i want to do something in europe i want to do something that's bigger i want to show 
you know, conventional fight in today's theater. And I'm like, Ukraine invading or Russia invading Ukraine is a perfect um, vehicle to do that. And then once I knew that I have a buddy, uh, he and I were troop commanders. He's one of my best friends. He and I were troop commanders together in Afghanistan and he retired as a colonel. And so I called him up. I'm like, all right, Kelsey, here's what's going down. How would the Russians do it? You know, what, what would they do to maintain the element of surprise? What, and you can look at what they did in Georgia and what they did when they invited invaded the Donbass the first time. And what the Russians were very, very good at then that they've been surprisingly bad at now is doing those grain man operations and setting the conditions before they ever invade. So how do you structure public opinion? How do you structure Ukrainian opinion where it seems like the Russians are actually being invited in, right? And so one of the things that's famous of Vladimir Putin is he rose to power under the pretext of the Chechnyan wars. And most um, in, intelligence now points to that the pretext for the um, Chechnyan invasion were these series of bombs that went off in apartment buildings in Russia. And people now believe that he had those planted and he was willing to murder Russians in order to generate a justification and, and murder Russians, pin it on the Chechnyans and use that as a justification to invade Chechnya. And so what you see in hostile intent is very much teams of Spetsnaz operating in the Ukraine and setting the conditions for the Russians to be able to, again, it looks like, hey, there are Russian speaking people here in the Donbass. We're going to go in and save them. Here's the atrocities and things that are happening that are actually being perpetrated by Russians. And so I wanted to show that and kind of give you the going back to to um, to uh, Red Storm Rising and some of those great Larry Bond wrote um, Red Phoenix that was about a Korean War. These great multi points of view. Here's how this would actually unfold. And so, you know, I, I picked the, the Russian invasion in the Ukrainian and there are a lot of things um, I got right or got close to right. The big thing, my biggest, biggest miss that you don't see that, that I got wrong was the ferociousness of the everyday Ukrainian and, and, that, and how willing they are to go to the mat um, to, to resist the Russian invasion. And so you see a little bit about that in the book. I talk about um, a militia that kind of comes to power and has an idea of how to counter the Russian invasion, but I'd certainly missed or didn't have in my book the, just the everyday, you know, there were all kinds of striking images um, when the invasion kicked off. But one of the ones, you know, I'll never forget is a nighttime shot and you see a Russian armored column turning a corner. And then it looks like this constellation of shooting stars or all these Molotov cocktails. And you think, you know, the amount of guts and fortitude and courage it takes for men and women to hurl Molotov cocktails, which are just glass bottles filled with alcohol at these Russian armored formations is just unbelievable. Well, and speaking of that militia, I'm glad you brought them up because I wanted to. It's not just a militia. Some of the yeah. key players of this militia have a very much uh, long history in fighting yeah. and battle with Russia. But there's a yep. lot of uh, there's a lot of inner turmoil with them. But you mentioned yep. something about those being the only people able to kind of take the fight to the Russians, the younger generation, yeah. the way yeah. I took from it was didn't have the stomach for it. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot. So when you looked at what happened when, when the Russians invaded the first time and, and again, what, what we did right after the Russians invaded the first time is our, is our 
um, specifically Army Special Forces, but in general, military trainers spent years training the Ukrainians on how to resist the <coughs> Russians, how to wage a successful counterinsurgency and stuff. They didn't have that the first go around. And so corruption, you don't see it as much now because people are, are justifiably behind Ukraine and rooting for them, but it's a very, very corrupt country. Very, very... Um, kind of in some ways the same way that the Russian oligarchs came to power in that 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 um, there were few who had money and influence and and they were I there's a there's a woman um, I know that goes to my church who's a Ukrainian expat and she, and she was telling me as a kid you know going into the hospital and she had appendicitis or appendix is about to rupture and they have socialized medicine in theory but when she would go in there, the anesthesiologist would come up and say, how much is my tip? And so before he would put her out, he would want to know how much is he going to get paid to do his job that he's already getting paid for. And so you don't you certainly don't see that right now because the Ukrainians are very, very united against fighting uh, the Russians. But there's a reason why that country has been in such turmoil. And so during the, the first invasion, there were some incredible things done not by government troops, but by militias who massed together and in, in some cases actually beat the government, you know, army to cities and stood alone against the Russians and said, and so I wanted to show that again and say, if that had stayed the same for this Russian invasion, if it was still a national, uh, you know, command authority that was either compromised or something, what would it look like if it was the militias that were carrying uh, the load of the fighting? And so you see some of that in hostile intent. So let's talk about the government a little bit, but I don't want to talk about that government. I want to talk about our government that you put in there. You made some yeah. interesting decisions with the government and, and I, as much as we can get into it, I want to, but if you tell me we're too far into it, I, I don't want to go there, but I think the choice for the president and the actions that he takes and how he treats staff and how his, I guess, approach mm -hmm. to war would be was an yeah. interesting take, especially for the kind of books that you're writing. So can we talk a little bit about that? Was there, was there a little bit of inner turmoil there? Um, I'm trying to think exactly what you're talking about without, <laughs> without giving stuff away. Um, I think, well, let, let's talk about his, I'll just say his right-hand man. There's yeah, very much yeah, a yeah, conflict yeah. there, but, yeah. but that man talks a lot about the president and how he approaches, let's say the war room. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I definitely wanted to show, and again, kind of the, the same, but different mentality is that a lot of times, um, a lot of times you can too easily get into um, a binary government or a binary leader. Somebody's either a hawk or a dove. They're, they're one or the other, right? They're either going to be for the war or against it. They're either going to be a pacifist or not. And I think if you look across, you know, take recent history um, out of it, but if you look across our nation's history, you know, regardless of political affiliation, you see people on both sides of the aisle who, when the moment called for it, you know, I think of, you know, John F. Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, where that was a, a moment in time where potentially history hinged on the decision that he made and he didn't shirk from the fight. Like he stood fast and said, we're not going to allow you into Cuba. We're going to blockade you. 
here's the line in the sand and by God, I'm actually going to stand behind it. And so I do kind of show or, or try and mix it up where I have a president who is not necessarily what you call a war hawk or is not somebody who you typically show as super aggressive. But I think we all want to we all want to believe that our leaders in that time will, you know, will will rise to our better angels, you know, like like John F. Kennedy did there. And so I wanted to show that I wanted to show what that would look like. With that, I think that you balanced it uh, with the choices that you made for directors, briefing personnel, mm-hmm. different things like that. I think that you you touched on different things. And like I said, I don't want to get too spoilerish with it. Sure. What I do want to ask you, though, of course, Matt is DIA. Uh, yeah. Were there some jabs at the CIA in this one? A little or, bit. Or not a couple of jabs, quite a few jabs at the CIA yeah. in this one. Yeah, I mean that's the that was part of the reason why I, I chose Matt to be um, a DIA officer is because the DIA and CIA have very similar missions, and um, as such are kind of wish that the other one does not exist because it's two people, two agencies with very similar missions who um, are both competing for the holy grail of of the presidency or right or, or both competing to be. Um, the intelligence agency who has um, who has the actionable intelligence, who has um, what the decision makers want, and, and and those lines have become very very muddled since September 11th. Right? You had now in in the initial invasion in Afghanistan, it was the CIA, not the DoD, who was the de facto combatant commander. Right? So you had the CIA jawbreaker teams in there. You had the C- the the Army Special Forces um, Green Berets who were in a subservient role to the CIA, and so you know that pissed Rumsfeld off. And there are great books written about it. How he's aggravated that it's the CIA is running his war in Afghanistan, and so Rumsfeld has his own intelligence organization. It's called the DIA, right? And so he can send them to go do the same message or mission as this, as the CIA does, and so. It's again one of the things I think that makes right or that drives story is conflict, and so if you can show conflict at the the micro level um, between people, between events, but also in the macro level between two organizations, and so you know Matt as a as a DIA officer is not going to get along for the most part with a CIA officer who sees him as a you know competing uh, person for influence for dollars and for mission set. So, yeah, I, I tried to bring some of that to the book for sure. Or assign them to very menial details. Or <laughs> So I want to talk about the setting, too, because I didn't know about this before I read the yeah. book, Vienna. Uh, I yeah. just think, you know, chocolates, classical mm-hmm. music, Mozart. way different. Yeah. Yeah. So I was my last assignment in the military was in Germany and uh the guy in the cubicle next to me was training for an Ironman, and he's like, let's go run a marathon together. And I was like, okay, why not? And he said, we'll do it in Vienna. And so I'd never been to Vienna before and uh, got to spend a couple days there doing the the marathon, and it was great. The people were fantastic. All of the things that you laid out um, were what I saw in, in Vienna. But then after I was done with that and started doing research and was living kind of my FBI life, you start to realize that Vienna was actually ground zero for East and West during the Cold War in that you had um, 
you know, the Soviet Union and all their satellites are, are there trying to run and recruit sources and the Americans and the Western allies are doing the same thing. And there's some, you know, urban legend that it, in addition to become called the city of music, Vienna is known as the city of spies and that at any given day, there's something like 7,000 spies all applying their trade at the same time in Vienna. And so it's very interesting dynamic where you have this city known for chocolate and music that is also the you know espionage underbelly of Europe. And I'm like, I have got to set the book there. And so um, that was very much an intentional choice based on kind of the research I've done and because it's such a beautiful city and I got to go there and, and run a marathon. So if I could ask you, because you talk about that that back in the day during the Cold War, that was where the Soviet satellites, what is the basis for it today? What What is it so special about Vienna today that continues to be the city of spies? Yeah, same thing. So it's still, I mean, the Soviet Union doesn't exist, but it's still that crossroads between East and West. You know, that that, that city, for whatever reason, is is still the city that is very much um, a center of gravity for intelligence operations in Europe. So it's kind of crazy. It's still, the Soviet Union's gone, but the countries, you know, Russia and and, and many of its um, many of its allies are still still at the same game on the same place. So it's kind of crazy. I remember talking to a friend who was um, had an assignment in Vienna. I'm like, why in the world would you be in Vienna? What's in Vienna? And he's like, it's the city of spies. Of course, I'd be in Vienna. So. Yeah, very much so. Can you talk about, without me pointing out, because I want you to do it, because once again, I don't want to get into spoilers territory. Can you talk mm -hmm. about a couple of your characters from Vienna in this and kind of the role that they play pushing this story along? Yeah, so there's one of the characters there is a, um, I think she's the director for um, one of the intelligence services there in Austria. And so when I was researching Austrian and Austrian politics, there's some really interesting things from the perspective that the Austrians had a, a very aggressive and dominant kind of ultra-right political party. And for a while, people were worried that that party um, was too too represented in some of their intelligence services, you know, and that, you know, were they compromised? Was there some, and so there are all kinds of nice corruption stuff that you see there kind of within the country. And then you also see that um, Austria now is, you know, not a, not a member of, um, of the, you know, the, the USSR or anything like that there. And they're also not, you know, a, 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 a um, extremely important um, Western uh, protected state. And so there's still a very little country that the two big boys on the block come in to duke it out on. Right. And so I thought, you know, what that would be really interesting to be able to have this woman who's a character there who knows that there are bad things going on in her country, but doesn't have the power to address them herself. And I thought, you know, maybe it'd be interesting if she said, you know, I know you're in my country and she she and Matt have a run in and I know you're in my country to do nefarious things or to to practice espionage. And I would like to be able to 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 address some of the things that happen in my country and I'm not able to. Maybe you could do those on my behalf and we could make a deal for that. And so there was some fun things I got to do um, from that perspective in Vienna as well. Two other questions that I have, and then I want to move on to some other stuff that you have. Sure. The next question would be for this one. Mm -hmm. 
is I noticed that in all of your books, it's very important that you make not only men strong characters, but your women very strong characters. Yeah. Why is that? Because I think it's, I, I think, number one, I want people, I want both men and women to be able to come to my books and have something to root for, right? I want, I want it to be, um, I think, I think men and women read books like this for different reasons. I think men read um, books like this because, you know, Lee, Lee Child famously said of his Jack Reacher series that men read his books because they want to be Reacher and women read them because they want to be with Reacher. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that necessarily, but, but I think men and women have different reasons for reading those books and want to have different things reflected there. I also want it want to be cognizant of the fact that over, especially since September 11th, over the last 20 years, the role that women play both on the battlefield and in the intelligence organizations has been completely revolutionized. And while, you know, there are some things that, that women um, still don't do and maybe won't ever do, they recognized very on, even before women were cleared to be a part of the Ranger Regiment, the Ranger Regiment had a selection of women who would go to um, objectives with them because they knew, especially in Muslim countries, that another woman, a woman on the target is much more likely to talk to a fellow woman than they are to this guy. And so I wanted to be able to show, you know, what is, you know, from my experience, a realistic way um, that women can be portrayed and are portrayed as assets on the battlefield. Um, and, and so I wanted to show that and I wanted to show, um, what that looked like. You know, I got to two of the best instructor pilots I flew with as an Apache aviator were both women. And that was a novel thing there. My, my friend's wife was the first Apache gunship, it was the first gunship pilot in the army back in the early nineties. Now that's a much more common thing. And so I wanted the books to be able to reflect, um, what has happened since then. And I also think that you should be able to be a strong character regardless of your sex. And people want to see, you, you read a lot of times because you project yourself onto that protagonist. You wish you could be that protagonist. And I wanted to show that from the perspective of both sex, sexes. With so much Israeli stuff with yours, do you think that has a basis in your females too? Because they've always been portrayed as very strong characters uh, with Israel. Yeah. And there's, and there's a lot of things I think as um, a, common Americans don't understand about the IDF. And I, I don't claim to be a, an, ex, an expert on the Israeli defense um, force, but I, because of the amount of time I've worked with Israeli companies. So the IDF is integrated from the standpoint of both men and women participate and are drafted, but it's not like the American military where women are in um, like infantry roles or things like that. They, they, the American army or the American military has gone far beyond the Israeli uh, military from that perspective. The women are, are still um, like a, a lot of times the women will be like the firearms instructors and things like that. They are not nearly as integrated as as um, the American military is. Um, well, I, I, I think uh, from maybe uh, uh, if I'm not stepping out of turn, Mossad and Shin Bet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, role. Yeah. And so. Um, What's interesting about the so the the Mossad and Shin Bet, the Mossad that that is the Foreign Intelligence Service and the Shin Bet, that's kind of like their version of the FBI, and then some. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 
I think what's interesting about Israelis in general is is because there's a national service, everybody's got skin in the game, right? And so whether whether you're a man, a woman, whatever, you are going to serve in some form or faction. And so I think that there there is perhaps, and I like I said, I don't know the the ratio of men to women in the Shimbet and Mossad, but I think Israel you know, maybe have been was a leader from that perspective in that early on. You know, they were because men and women both served in the IDF, because men and women were both had the national service. They may have been kind of the leader in that. But, yeah, I, I definitely the the woman that we talked about before, Ella, is a is a female Mossad officer. And, and it was it was a ton of fun to do that. You know, when you're when you're writing a story, what you want to do is give the, re- the reader the best experience you can. And so when you're making character choices, when you're doing I said, you know, I have a male Mossad officer and here's what this would look like. Or I could have a female Mossad officer. Does that add to complexity, the level of complex, uh, conflict in the book? And, and then even though it's harder to write, I thought that that would be fun and that it would give something more to the story by doing it that way. Uh, very succinct answer there. Uh, <laughs> I, I like that. What's next for Matt now? we have the terminal list coming out on TV uh, that I know you're super excited about. Yeah. We have Jack Reacher. That's already come out. I don't know how you yep. feel about that. That's kind of a mixed bag it. on people. I uh, like the new Jack Reacher series. I thought they did a great job. Can you promise us and make it a premiere on this show that Matt Drake is going to have a series? <laughs> I can't promise you that he will have a series, but I promise that, when I get news like that, I will let you know, and and we will we will try and debut it here. But so far, we don't we don't have anything to report. Um, it's really a crapshoot. Like like the guys now that are making it not making it look easy, but are having great luck. Like Mark Greeny and 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 um, Jack Carr. For every two of those guys, you know, Brad Taylor has written. I think 14 New York Times bestselling authors or um, books. He's never had his series optioned. And so it's, you know, it really is the luck of the draw. Who knows? I would love to see that, but who knows? Look how many hands Tom Clancy's gone through. I mean, Mm -hmm. from from movies to TV series to different directors. So what's next for Matt then? If we can't talk about television, we can't talk about a movie right now. And the reason I bring it up is because this book, cover is fantastic i told you when you released it that day i sent it to you and said man i can see this as a movie poster yeah they do such a good job with it and it was you know for this one they're like what do you want the book to be about and i'm like it's gonna a bunch of it's gonna be in vienna and it's got this and they're like they go do their magic and they're like how about this and i feel like every one of the book covers has been phenomenal but for this one especially the level of detail there. And I feel like they just reached inside my brain and pulled out what I would have wanted if I could have articulated it that way. But the next map book is called Forgotten War, and it'll be out um, next year at this time. And so like like many other Afghan veterans, you know, watching um, the collapse of Afghanistan in 2021 really just affected me on a, in a, in a visceral manner. And, you know, many of my friends, you know, we're all texting each other and asking questions like, was it worth it on one hand? And then the other hand is, you know, do you find anywhere where there are cheap tickets to Kabul? Because I think, you know, I, I did go, I was texting with my old first sergeant and I'm like, you know where they got any gunships? And he's like, actually I do. Here's the, 
here's the locker where their MD 500s are. And so it's, you know, it was this horrible, it was this horrible thing where you're just watching what you've worked for, what you've lost friends for, what just to, you know, go down the toilet. And so that, you know, affected me in, in a very primal nature. And then at the same time from my books, um, so I have people love the dynamic between Matt and his best friend Frodo. And um, it's been so great to hear that. But the what I can show Matt and Frodo do now is limited because of, you know, Frodo's pretty catastrophic injuries. And so I'd had an idea for a while. I'm like, you know, maybe I should maybe I should think about doing a novella that's kind of a, a prequel or something like that. And so when I was talking with um, my editor, Tom Colgan, about it, and he said, well, Mark Graney wrote this great book, Relentless where he has two timelines going on at the same time. And he's like, what if you did that? And so I kind of pulled all of that together. And so Forgotten War takes place um, over a couple, the, the couple of day time when Afghanistan is actually completely falling and it has two different timelines. And so one of them is in Afghanistan present day or present day then. And then the other timeline is Matt and Frodo in Afghanistan X number of years earlier. And so that mission very much ties into why Matt's in Afghanistan as Afghanistan's kind of crumbling as a backdrop. And so, again, it, it's it's uh, it's probably the most I say this every time it's the most ambitious thing I've ever written, but also um, a deeply personal one You're I'm trying to wrestle with a lot of those questions myself. Um, of that, like, it was it worth it? Was what we did worth it? Will it even matter? Is, you know, how do you reconcile the fact that all of these Afghans stood shoulder to shoulder with us year after year, and we left them there? You know, how do you, how do you reconcile that? And so that is um, very much in this book, and it's called Forgotten War, and it'll be out next year this time. Well, we can always uh, hope that uh, they will be as good as the ones that you had before. I have no doubt that they will be. Um, Thank you. One other question about Matt. Who do you see playing him in TV, a movie? Who do you envision? So the problem is I'm too old, and the actors, I think, are, are way too old to play it. But my wife... <laughs> well, there's some that are... I'm going to say it fucking vampires out there. And there are a couple of them that you like, and I think they're vampires. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, I think that's true. My wife thinks that, um, and I kind of agree with her because he's young enough, but the guy, uh, his name escapes me now, but the guy that played Jon Snow in the, um, yeah, uh, I can't think Kit Carrington or something like that. Yeah. Kit Harrington. He's got that nice little, yeah. He's got the nice little scruffy look to him. He's about the right age. I think he'd have the right intensity. I just don't know if he's got, cause Matt's funny. And so I've never seen him from a comedic standpoint. And so you'd need somebody, you know, obviously not a stand up comedian or something, but somebody like Mel Gibson was good at it in lethal weapon. He had, you know, he's kind of this quirky guy, but he had, he had some great lines in there too, but, or Bruce Willis, again, all the guys I pick are way too old to be able to do it, but he's not even acting anymore. I know it's tragic. It's tragic. I saw that. Um, but yeah, those were the guys I had in mind or thought about, um, when I was writing the book, because those were like, we've talked about so many times before. Those were the, the movies and the iconic actors that had such a big influence on me. But, 
Tom pretty much looks the exact same as he did during <laughs> the first Top Gun. So uh, maybe he can do it. <laughs> That's I'm so excited I'm for that you. movie, by the way. I'm We're so going to talk about that, that in a minute. Movie. I know. We're, I, I know. <laughs> We're going to talk about it in a minute. Uh, here's my idea. Chris Pine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's proven he himself in movies like Hell or High Water. He just made the yeah. contractor where he's an action like military guy. I, mm-hmm. I think we could pull this off. I'll His get my people on start. it. You get your people on it. Yeah, I don't yeah. really have His people. Version, but. I don't either, but we'll pretend. His version of the Star Trek movies are incredible. Like he has, he very much has the comedic wit. He'd be a good one. That's a good idea. Have hey. him get in touch with me. I'll take okay. his call. Okay, I, I, will, uh, I will put in a call. <laughs> Let's talk quickly about Jack Ryan Jr. Because that's not what we're here to talk about tonight. We're here to talk about Matt Drake. But let's talk about Zero Hour. Yeah. So um, my first assignment right out of flight school was Korea. And back then it was the late 90s. That was the closest you could get to um, kind of an active conflict. And and what I mean by that, we certainly weren't um, lobbing missiles back and forth. But the North Koreans are crazy and they would do stuff like send, um, they would shoot up South Korean boats or they would send their little midget subs in and you'd have to, you know, there'd be commandos, Northern commandos running across South Korea. And there was at one point where we were during the point, one of the times where they were shelling each other back and forth that we broke out our go to war stock and were throwing Apaches on Hellfire missiles because we thought this was, or throwing Hellfire missiles on Apaches because we thought this was the real deal. And I always thought it would be really fun to do kind of like what I did with Hostile Intent, where you see a more epic um, military thriller, but show it in the Korean Peninsula. And so that is what Zero Hour is. It takes place in South Korea, and it is huge. It's the, the, I say this every time, it's the biggest book. It's actually, from the word count perspective, it's the biggest one I've ever seen. And you get to see the conflict unfold, both from the North Korean perspective um, the South um, Korean and U.S. perspective, and I've got this great um, uh, subplot that is a, a Apache scout platoon leader in his first platoon, and he takes over just as this kicks off. And so it was so much fun to write. And then I took all the people I ever served with and made them characters in it. And so, like, I blasted out, like, when the book came out, I took a snapshot of the character sheet and I said, you're in it and you're in it and you're in it. And it was it was so much fun to do. And when Tom, Tom, my editor, read it, he's like, he's like, holy cow, this is much more like a Jack Ryan senior book because of the scope of it. And I the, was uh, just about to say that. Is this Jack Ryan Jr.'s yeah. Hunt for Red October? Man, I, I can't claim that because that is the once-in-a-lifetime masterpiece. But it is certainly a much bigger book um, than what he usually gets. And I also pulled some of the characters from Target Acquired um, that I like there. The same um, pair of Green Beret snipers that were in Target Acquired are back in, in action here again. And it was it was a lot of fun to do. It was a lot of fun to be able to show. Um, I actually had uh, – there's a – well, I don't know if I want to go into it. There's some, there's some really neat stuff in there that I got some, some help from uh, Jack Carr was kind enough to make a couple of calls for me so I could talk to some people and write um, a couple really cool scenes in there. So I'm super, super excited um, for people to take a look at this. It's still, 
the Clancy universe. It's still Jack Ryan Jr. kind of doing what he does, but it shows it from um, a Korean War perspective and very much um, kind of an epic military thriller. I'm excited. Uh, All right. I'm going to give you two minutes free reign to talk about Top Gun Maverick and just get it out of your system. (laughs) It is so good. I mean, I might, there might've been like tears coming out of my, when I saw it, like there's Maverick and he's back. And it's, I just, I mean, my life might be complete after this comes out. I mean, there there may not be anything left on my bucket list to check. All right. Okay. Let's talk about it. Admiral Kaczynski, (laughs) come on. You know, I gotta play devil's advocate a little bit. Admiral Kaczynski, the shade you want, and I don't care because Maverick is back. Maverick is back. Can this movie fail? No. Um, No matter what it does, it will be good for you. I don't know, man. Have you seen the trailer? Like, I could just yes. watch that trailer for two hours, just on recycle, over and over and over and over again. Well, I've got and some I stuff. I got some stuff. I'm going to try and send you of the behind the scenes where they're shooting it and the actual training, the flight training that went into it and stuff. So, awesome. I think you'll appreciate that. But as yeah, yeah. always, when you're on the show, we have to get the <laughs> '80s trivia. <laughs> Because there were numerous points in this book where you brought up 80s movies. So we're going to talk about 80s movies tonight. All right. All right. Are you ready for your I, questions? I mean, I kind of rocked it last time. So I, I'm, I'm feeling I, I think you might be painting with a very broad brush there, but that's okay. All right. Here we go. First question. How much does Hans, Grumer in, Hans Gruber intend to steal in Die Hard? One billion dollars. Uh, I don't know. Is it five hundred million dollars? Very close. Six hundred and forty million. When you what? What is it? He's got that great line. Like when you rob a bank, you can go away, but if you rob six hundred and forty million, they're gonna look for you the next day or something like that. Well, you should have remembered that line, and that would have helped you I with didn't that remember answer. Six hundred forty million. A little, it's got the scene of the little electrons coming down. And they're oh. drilling it. Oh, it's such a good movie. I, yeah, but such the second movie. one was better. We can debate that later. The second oh. one was better. We, we'll debate it later. All right, All right, number two. Name the school where Ferris Bueller went to in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ridgemont High. No, Shermer High. <laughs> What's Ridgemont High? That was something. That was Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you did kill it last time, but you are stinking it up this time. All right, here we go. Question number three. Which one of the following movies was produced and distributed by Warner Brothers? The Shining, Princess Bride, or The Breakfast Club? Don't you forget about me, The Breakfast Club. It's actually The Shining. Okay. Where do and we're you moving on. Questions? I, I can't tell you that. Which of the following 80s movie was Anthony Michael Hall not part of? Top Gun, 16 Candles, or The Breakfast Club? So he was Goose and Top Gun. I can't remember who he was in The Breakfast Club. Was he in the Breakfast Club? I think he was in the Breakfast. He was in all those John Hughes movies. So the other movie, what would you say? Sixteen Candles, Top Gun, Sixteen Candles, yeah. and the Breakfast Club. Sixteen Candles. 
It was Top Gun because Anthony Michael Hall is not the guy you're thinking of. Oh, that was tricky. That was tricky. What's <laughs> Goose's name? He's Anthony something. Uh, his name is uh, Anthony. I cannot think of it, but yet you were on the right track. Mm. Now Anthony Michael Hall's in all the Halloween movies now. So, mm. all right. When was the famous 80s movie Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back released? In the 80s. In the 80s. Okay, uh, what year? 85. 1980. Come on! <laughs> All right. You've got two more questions to make it up here. Which test did Ferris Bueller from Ferris Bueller's Day Off miss on his day off? His math test. European socialism. That's, uh, they can't do math either. It was math. All right. I, <laughs> all right. Here we go. The judges need to weigh in on that one. What this, is for, this is for all the marbles. All right. All right. Name the film in which Emilio Estevez and Jennifer Grey were part of. Red Dawn, the Wolverines. Okay, that, that, that would be one. Yes. Okay. Very good. So you made it up on the end. I'll give you one more. One more as a bonus. All right. What was the name of the female protagonist in the movie Terminator? Sarah Connor. You did great. The last two you Woo. got. Woo. What's the other one that Jennifer Grey and uh, Emilio Estevez were in? Well, I think they have the wrong answer on this one. They say The Breakfast Club, but she wasn't in The Breakfast Club. She wasn't in The Breakfast Club. No, she was mm -hmm. not. Mm-hmm. I she mean, was I, in, I had uh, to correct your question. Jennifer Gray was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. She was mm. Ferris's sister. She was in uh, Dirty uh, Dancing. Dirty Dancing, yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. You did okay. You, you answered two out of ten. That's not bad. We'll, we'll work on it for next time. All right. Let's go down the list. Don, they can find you at donbentleybooks.com. They can find everything about you, bio, books, everything they want to know. Hostile Intent, pre-order right now. You can buy it on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, Books A Million, IndieBound, and Google Play. Let's talk about Zero Hour. Same yep. places they can buy it, correct? Same places. All right. What do you got to promote? I am going on book tour, and so I'll be up in your neck of the woods here. We're I am go coming to here. see you on May 10th. It's going to be awesome. We'll be in uh, Dallas. We'll be in Houston. We'll be in Phoenix. We'll be in Cincinnati. And we're kicking it all off in Georgetown, Texas on uh, this Sunday. So it is going to be awesome. That's all it. Right. And, all right. And Top Gun 2. Top Gun 2. Can you tell me the day it releases? No. Okay. <laughs> I think it's May 25th. I think it's something I think like it's that. the end of May. It's the end yeah. of May, I'm pretty sure. I don't know. It's been put off for like nine years. So, <laughs> All right. Let's go back over it one more time, guys. Dom Bentley. You can find him at dombentleybooks.com. You can find out all these books, the bios behind them, the stories behind them. Get to know the characters. Get to know him. Get to be part of his book club. You can find this book pre-ordered on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, Books A Million, IndieBound, and Google Play. You can also find Zero Hour at all those. 
pre-order for Hostile Intent now, guys. You will not be disappointed. This book is absolutely fantastic. You knocked it out of the park on this one, Don. I thank, thank you. you so much for coming by and talking about it. Every year I look forward to this conversation that we have for your books coming out. Guys, if you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all of these conversations are in video form every single week. You guys come here because the best stories are true and we give them to you. Make sure that you check out dtdpodcast.net and that you go and look for our new sponsor, Police Coffee, at policecoffee.com. With your purchases, they give money to fallen officers, so make sure you go check them out. Guys, that's going to be the show for this week. Make sure you go check out this book. That's Don. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. We'll see you later.